Happy New Year, and welcome to the Brave Marriage Podcast, a podcast for couples who want to grow as individuals, do marriage with intention, and live mutually empowered, purposeful lives. I hope you had a wonderful, restful holiday season. I apologize that I didn't get the podcast out last week in keeping with our every other week schedule, but I am so excited to finally share with you my interview with author Carolyn Custis James. But I do want to issue a content warning at the beginning of this episode. Carolyn takes a no-nonsense approach to talking about real-life issues and the importance of being able to stand on truth when tragedy strikes, and so there are a few mentions of tragedy and loss throughout the episode that may be triggering if you've also experienced the loss of a spouse or a family member in a tragic way. Apart from that, I do hope that this interview makes you think and inspires you at the start of the new year. Welcome to the Brave Marriage Podcast. I am excited to have with me today, Carolyn Custis James. Carolyn is an award-winning author, speaker, and adjunct professor at Missio Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She's dedicated her speaking and writing ministry to addressing the deeper needs and issues confronting both men and women as they endeavor to extend God's kingdom together in a messy and complicated world. Carolyn holds a master's in biblical studies and has written a number of thought-provoking books, including When Life and Beliefs Collide, Lost Women of the Bible, Understanding Purpose, Half the Church, The Gospel of Ruth, Maelstrom, and Finding God in the Margins. Today, she resides in Pennsylvania with her husband, Frank, president of Missio Seminary, and together they have a daughter and two granddaughters. So Carolyn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, I would love to get started with you just telling us a little bit about your background, how you grew up, and also how you grew into your view of God and your view of God's design for men and women. Okay, that's a boatload of questions there. But um, I grew up in a, uh, as a pastor's daughter. So I grew up in the church, and um, it was a conservative Christian church, by uh, a Bible church. The church was my world. I, I couldn't get enough of it. And I just I grew up hearing who I was as, uh, as a follower of Jesus and as a woman. And I have three brothers, no sisters. My mother used to lament that I grew up in a boy's dorm. (laughs) (laughs) There was not, I didn't get a lot of coaching about what girls should be doing at different ages. I had to learn from some of my friends. Um, But it was, you know, I was raised to believe that my purpose as a woman would be fulfilled as a wife and mother. And I bought into it. 100%. It was what I saw in my parents' lives. My mom married when she was 19, and there were four of us. And um, it was what I saw in the church. And so for me, when I uh, went off to college, um, a couple of things happened that were were shaping. And um, one was just that I was exposed to a lot of different ideas. It was a Christian college. I had a professor there who was a New Testament scholar. And his classes were, it was like new layers of the Bible were being opened up by what he was teaching us. And Mm -hmm. like I said, I couldn't get enough of it growing up. And that just 
whetted an appetite uh, even more to understand the Bible and to study it and never expecting that it would lead me in ways I hadn't anticipated. So that was that was a, a big deal for me. And it was also a big deal for me when I went to a women's brunch. And the message for women was so fluffy compared to what I was hearing in class, compared to what I grew up with, that I was just horrified. And, um, you know, that was sort of the beginning of my whole career as a, as a writer, which would come couple of decades later but it was you know what happened to me simultaneously is that when I graduated from college I didn't get married I had a decade of singleness Mm -hmm. I ended up going to seminary I moved to Texas and um, moved out on my own in an apartment for one you know I had to pay my own bills and take care of myself and it was a long road and it, it challenged everything. Yeah. I felt like I can miss what God created me for as a woman. And it was, it was probably one of the most important experiences of my life because it made me ask different questions. It made me ask questions about God. It made me ask questions about his purposes for me as a woman. And, um, you know, because I hit a wall where I couldn't do what I had been raised to believe was my purpose as a woman. Right. And how common is that? Yeah. How, how common is that in, in the church, in the world? I had a friend who was married and um, had kids and they had a party at their home and they went out in the backyard and her husband had drowned in the pool. I mean, her whole life. And so, all right, okay, is she out of God's will as a woman? Because now she has to be the breadwinner. She has to be the decision maker. You know, she is on her own in a second. You know, the questions we ask about ourselves are not, our answers aren't going to be sufficient if they collapse under somebody else's story. Mm -hmm. and so that was kind of the context for me but it took a long time for me to really ask the hard questions and when you say it took you a long time was that in that decade of singleness or even beyond that that you're still discovering new questions even even beyond that because you know, I, I was wrestling with God, you know, do, do I matter to him? Is, has he abandoned me? I'm, you know, going to all my friends' weddings and baby showers. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I just feel like I've been abandoned. Mm -hmm. And I came to a point in those years where I believed that this was God's purpose for me. And, And that changed it all. But, you know, when I got married, I thought, okay, I know how to do this. Right, right. Back in that comfort zone. (laughs) Yeah, I've been raised, you know, to know what, you know, where I fit in in this in this relationship. My mom even said to me one time, you will follow your husband. And I thought, well, thank you for the heads up. (laughs) 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 You know, I want to know where he's going before I sign on. (laughs) (laughs) And um, when we got married, my husband was in seminary and I knew, you know, women in my family had worked 
uh, in the early years of their marriages to put their husbands through, um, you know, graduate training or medical school or something. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so I thought, okay, this is, I know I'm supposed to, to do this. Well, one of the first things my husband said to me, you'll have to interview my husband. <laughs> so, oh, I love that. <laughs> he, he is amazing. But anyway, when we, when we first got married, you know, I, people had given me cookbooks for, <laughs> for wedding gifts and I needed all the help I could get. And he, we were having dinner one evening and he said to me, you know, I, I really enjoyed these nice little meals, but he said, you need to find out what your gifts are and what God wants you to do with your life. And I'm not the answer to that question. Mm. So how disorienting was that or surprising? (laughs) It was totally disorienting. And I, you know, I, it took me a while to settle in. I mean, my husband was working on his master's degree in seminary, and then he started working on a doctorate. And then he found out that a seminary doctorate wasn't going to get him a job. So my husband has two PhDs. Wow. And we moved to Oxford and he that took four years. But before that, even when we were here in Philadelphia and he was getting his master's and then moving into doctoral work, and he was nearly finished with that when he realized he wasn't going to be able to get a job. But I was in the workplace for seven years here in Philadelphia. We got married when I was 32, you know, and I um, am having a battle with infertility that ultimately I lost. Mm-hmm. So, you know, everything is still challenging me. And I'm thinking I'm s- supposed to be at home. You know, we had families come about in different ways. We got our daughter. I was the breadwinner and my husband was Mr. Mom. You mm-hmm. know, it was all upside down. And we had a conversation where I said, I don't get the feeling you're trying to get me home. And he said to me, you do what you got to do. And that was the beginning. I mean, I went back to work, not, not with the idea I have to do this, but that I'm called to do this. Mm -hmm. Everything changed at that point. Sure. And we come from totally different backgrounds. You know, I, um, my dad is a pastor. Our family was intact. You know, we were, you know, all, all of my brothers have gotten graduate degrees and so have I. And he came from a single mom, you know, a divorce situation, poverty, Mm -hmm. just hard work Mm -hmm. to survive. And he was the oldest child. So he, he saw a lot more and he, you know, worked him, he himself worked, I mean, he's a miracle story. But anyway, that's when everything changed for me. And I went back to my job asking, what can I do more? Mm -hmm. And and it opened up a whole career for me in computer uh, software that when we were in Oxford for four years, Oxford University had just standardized on that software. And I had been working with the designers of it Mm -hmm. and 
I got my first client was Oxford University Computing Services. Wow, a small you know, client. So, you know, it changed instead of saying, here's my role and this is what I need to do. It was what, what is God calling us to do mm-hmm. and what gifts and privileges and opportunities has he entrusted to us and how can we steward yeah. in our marriage what our story is yeah. and I do it in, in, you know, the path that God opened to me, which has just been beyond anything I ever would have imagined. And that my husband would be able to pursue what God was calling him to do. And that we're in this together. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like he's got to take all the responsibility. It's like, it's a hundred percent hundred percent. Yeah. And we're, we're together in this. And I, you know, I, that's not what I was taught about marriage. You right. Know, here that the husband's going to provide and protect and, <laughs> you know, defend you and all these other things. And you don't realize that you're called to do those things for him. Yeah. And you don't realize you have your own strength. No one has ever told you that. So it's a complete mindset shift. Yeah. But it made me start asking questions about the Bible's message for women. And I started out asking about is theology for women? Because I could, you know, we can't survive on these fluffy devotionals. Yeah. Know? Can you say more about that? Like when you had that brunch and you're saying it was so flowery compared to the substance I'm getting in my New Testament classes. Can you talk about the dichotomy there? I mean, what were some of those differences? Well, it, you know, it was cute and it was, you know, Christianity is about all of life and it is a global message. And, you know, we have a lot of blessings and privileges here, but our theology has to apply to the women in Afghanistan and to the women in Africa and to the women at the border. You know, it's not, it's for the whole world. Mm -hmm. And we, and we've, you know, the Bible is not an American book. And like I said, I can't put my weight down on theology that's going to collapse under somebody else's story. And so I, you know, it was funny because I wanted to write a book about the importance of theology for women. And what I meant by that was that we need to know God for ourselves, that when the bottom drops out of your life, like the woman whose husband had drowned in their pool, you know, that the theology you reach for is your own. Yeah. You're going to reach for what you believe about God, whether it's true or not, whether it's adequate or inadequate, and all of us need to learn more. You know, I when I published my first book, it was a total miracle because publishers want to know how big is your tribe? You know, how many books am I going to sell? And I'm thinking, well, let's see, there's my mother, <laughs> you know, and I have a couple of friends and I'm sure, you know, was, I didn't yeah. have a tribe. I hadn't done anything. I had, you know, I'd spoken at a bunch of women's retreats, but you know, that's, that's not enough. But I told them I wanted to write about the importance of theology for women. And the book I wrote, I argue that the first great New Testament theologian 
was a woman before the male disciples. Mm -hmm. It was Mary of Bethany. And she sat at Jesus' feet and she heard everything that he was teaching the men. And she struggled when he didn't show up when her brother died and they had called for help and they knew he loved them. Why didn't he come if, you know, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then when Jesus faces his own crisis, she's learned at his feet and she struggled and he took her deeper when she struggled. The struggles matter. So when he's in his, when he is facing his crisis and his male disciples are all in denial, they don't want to talk about this. Mm-hmm. She comes to him and she pours that nard on him. And he says, she did this to prepare me for burial. And then he says, what she did to me was a beautiful thing. So when he's facing the battle, you talk about the blessed alliance, which you want to talk about. That was a blessed alliance. A woman was with him in that battle. And the only one to encourage him to do what his father was calling him to do, mm. you know? And so when I, when I, the, the editors come to the seminaries, cause they want to see what the professors are up to. If there's a manuscript lying around, well, my husband is my chief advocate and he was meeting with the, actually the brother of my new Testament professors. Uh, Stan Gundry is editor-in-chief at Zondervan. And Frank said to him, I think you might be interested in what my wife is doing. Mm -hmm. So he invited me to submit a proposal, which I did on the importance of theology for women. That's amazing. You know, he talked to me and he said, you know, this isn't, this isn't the kind of book we publish for women. (laughs) And it became a battle. I got a rejection letter from the first editor who was a man. And I went back. I I told my husband, I said, well, you know, there you go. Nobody wants to publish something I'm going to write. And he said, if this is important, it's worth fighting for. What are you going to do? Mm. You know, so I went back. I went back to Stan and talked to him and he was all, he was always supportive, but you have to get through your proposal through these committees. I mean, I see that as an example of the blessed Alliance right there, right? Like had Frank not been urging you to holding your feet to the fire there, your work (laughs) might not be out in the world. And then I wouldn't be having this conversation with you about things that you've written that mean so much to me. So Well, nobody ever told me to fight for something, but that's all I'm doing now. <laughs> I love it. So we've, we've referenced the Blessed Alliance a couple of times. And for my listeners, it's this concept that you have written about. I read it this summer in Half the Church, which I love. My husband and I read it together. And, um, you know, I think there are a lot of parallels in our stories. Um, I came from a somewhat similar background. My husband came from a different background. He has been my chief empowerer. We've walked through infertility. And so finding myself asking a lot of those same questions that you were. And so finally to read your book this summer, so much of your thinking, both of us were like, wow, these are, this is what we've been asking. These are the things we've been coming to. And so to see it written. So anyway, I would love for you to explain to my audience what the Blessed Alliance is and where that comes from in scripture. Okay. Well, 
you know, one of the things that we do when we study the Bible is we spend most of our time in the New Testament, but God is vision casting in Genesis 1 and 2 at the creation. And I went to that text to find out my first question was, did God create women to be theologians? Well, the first thing we learn about ourselves is that he created us to reflect his character, (laughs) which means we need to know him. You know, the, the very first thing that happens on the pages of scripture is that there is an open invitation for humanity to know their creator, to learn to love what he loves and to look after things on his behalf. And we do, you know, when we look at this text, we do a lot about marriage, the creation of marriage, I always felt left out of Genesis 2. Um, And I wanted to know, is that text talking to me? And, you know, I've become convinced that every other text of scripture needs to be subjected to the scrutiny of Genesis 1 and 2, because this is God's vision for his creation, for his image bearers, for the world. And it's what we lose in chapter 3. And we lose it big time, you know, but everything else, everything else is to recover that vision, Mm -hmm. to recover that vision. And it's a radical vision. And it, you know, you, you probably came across the concept of the missing chapter in the Bible. Yes. (laughs) Which I've gotten all kinds of trouble for, but (laughs) you know, we don't get to see them live like this. Because as soon as we turn from chapter two to chapter three, we have their rebellion. Everything falls apart. So we're learning what this might be. Mm-hmm. And it's it's more radical than just could men and women get along better? And would they please make a seat at the table for women or for sure. authority? But it doesn't change how they think or act, you know, or decide. Mm-hmm. It's sort of they're doing us a favor because, you know, we're pounding the table saying we want to be there too. Right, right. And to me, it it feels like such a distraction, really, like to keep having those conversations that make us feel bigger or make us feel more empowered. But really what you're saying is it's still too small. Like this is not God's vision. This is a very human vision that is less than what God has for us. Well, and it's true. You know, I, I, you know, the church's gender debate has problems. I mean, I get phone calls from ordained, female ordained pastors who are being abused. And it's because, you know, the, the leadership in the church, have, they've checked the box that says, we believe women can be ordained. And, you know, they did that at the seminary I went to. They checked the box that said, we'll, we'll teach women. And I went back to that seminary and spoke in chapel. And I said, I know you were doing us a favor. But actually, you need us here (laughs) because they're just their blind spots. They're things they don't see. My own father told me that. He said, you see things I don't see. Mm -hmm. I said, well, that happens with you that you see things I don't see. So if we come together, we're going to see more. Yeah. So the blessed alliance is when God creates his male and female image bearers. And that comes with a boatload of responsibilities and power and privilege that's to be used for creation to flourish. Mm-hmm. Not power over each other, but power to do God's purposes in the world, to be agents of his goodness. And the power over comes in Genesis 3 after there's a rebellion. 
But what caught my attention was that when in Genesis 1, when God creates the male and female, he says that he sends them out to be fruitful and multiply and to rule and subdue creation and to do it together. He doesn't say, now the men... <laughs> the men need to do this part and the women need to do that part. You know, he didn't. Then where do we get that, Carolyn? Why has the church taught us that? <laughs> well, you know, and I think it hmm, that's a different question. So let's go back to the blessed alliance and then we'll go to that. Great. Uh, the blessed, the, the, when God sends them out with this mandate that they share, says that he blessed them and not only that he's been saying after he creates things it's very good it's very good it's very good but when he just when he looks at the man in the second chapter and says it's not good for him to be alone he's underscoring the blessed alliance that what god is creating out of the man so she's she's already part of him and now she's a separate being and god is saying this is what you need and it's not because there's something wrong with him mm-hmm. he's a he's a masterpiece he's named the animals that's the beginning of science so god is underscoring that men and women need each other and and we've we've reduced this to marriage yeah doesn't talk about marriage until the very end. And what it says is very anti-patriarchal. It says that the man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. And in patriarchy, that's not how it works. She becomes property of her husband's family. And even if her husband dies, they still own her. So it's It's that this is the way God's work will be done in the world in the best possible way. And even Jesus works with women and even Paul works with women, you know, and they're better for, you know, able to do what God is calling them to do because they have that support. You know, the women went right through the whole thing from Mary of Bethany to the women who followed him to the cross, who were there when he was buried and went to, you know, to anoint him after he was buried. Yeah. You know, and the same with Paul, you know, when God interrupts Paul's missionary journey and said, and with the vision to come to Macedonia, when Paul gets there, he doesn't find a stadium full of people. He finds a group of praying women. Mm. This is Paul, the former Pharisee, Paul, the man who was religious terrorist. Yeah. And he's with Gentile women. And when he writes the letter to the Philippian church, he says, I thank God every time I think of you for your partnership in the gospel from the first day. How beautiful. The first day was just women. And we don't even see that. You know, we miss that when we read it all. Right. You talk about that missing chapter, but in those examples you're giving, it's like, but we do have examples, you know, we might have that missing chapter, but it looked like pre-fall, but, but we have these glimpses of moving toward redemption. Yeah. Um, it, God's in the story. He doesn't leave the story. He's in the story. And the marvel of the Bible is that the Bible comes out of a foreign culture, more like Afghanistan. Mm. It's intensely patriarchal. Women are valued for for producing sons, not daughters, sons, 
And it's a story about men. And yet over and over and over again, women step out on the pages of scripture and God moves his purposes forward through them. I can't help but think about, you know, what happened in Afghanistan and in these stories, like it just makes it so much more real to think about what's happening over there and to think about the women that God is using right now that we have never heard of like these women in the Bible. Yeah. I know that um, you've written on the gospel of Ruth. I know that that story is dear to your heart. Could you share more about Ruth's story and expanding the blessed Alliance beyond just Ruth and Boaz? Yeah. Well, it's the book of Ruth was a game changer for me. And um, I still grieve (laughs) over lessons I learned from that book because I was in a seminary class at the seminary where my husband was. And the professor was teaching on some of the Old Testament narratives. And when it came to the book of Ruth, I just, you know, internally was rolling my eyes because I thought I, you know, I grew up on this story. I've, you know, I've taught it in Sunday school classes and it always bothered me that there were, that it was a happily ever after mm-hmm. because there's so much death and loss in the opening chapters. I just thought, you know, something's wrong when we, when we think you forget your heartache and grief, you know, I think of gold star families and Sandy hook parents, and it doesn't matter what good things happen to them. They're not going to stop hurting. And so, you know, Naomi's hurting in the end, Job is hurting in the end. Um, So anyway, but that just never made sense to me. And, uh, but it's such, you know, we're taught this as a beautiful love story, as a sort of a Cinderella story, you know, where we have Ruth, who's this beautiful Jordanian, (laughs) she would be an Arab in today's world. So she's totally an outsider and uh, she's gleaning in the field and she just is picture perfect you know, not a drop of sweat. And here comes this rich, handsome bachelor. When, you know, in patriarchy, you would be a a disgrace to your family if you didn't marry and start producing sons to perpetuate the family for another generation. So, you know, we've really distorted these characters that, that they've, you know, that their eyes lock when he comes to the field, you know, they've fall for each other and and he's good to her but she keeps slaving in the field all through the harvest season and at the end they marry she proposes marriage and he agrees and they get married and she has a baby boy and that's where you see the happily ever after banner waving over the story Mm -hmm. and it's so much deeper than that and I love it that you know the story opens by introducing Naomi's husband and two sons Mm -hmm. and um, you know so as a woman who's produced two sons for her husband she can hold her head up high she's done her duty and that her world falls apart People need to meditate on the first five verses of the book of Ruth. And this professor was teaching this as as literature, a story with a plot where all the chapters hold together. What happens in the first chapter is, is carrying all the way through Naomi's anger and grief and struggle with God. And Ruth plummets to the bottom. She's undocumented immigrant. She's been barren for 10 years, which 
no man in his right mind would want her for a wife because the number one <laughs> priority is fertility and producing sons. And then she's then she becomes an undocumented immigrant. I mean, she if you value a woman by counting her sons, both women become zeros after verse five. And Naomi and when Naomi comes, you know, I mean, she's trying to spare them by sending them her two daughters-in-law home. And, and Ruth, something has happened to her and she refuses to go. And she not only embraces Naomi, but she embraces Naomi's God. And Naomi's, what scholars have been saying about the book of Ruth in, in recent research is that this is a Job story. It's a story of a female Job. And um, Naomi is asking questions that we all ask sooner or later, you know, has God, is God against me? I mean, I was asking those questions when I was single, you know, as he turned his back on me. And God won't answer Naomi with a prophet or a, a vision or a voice from heaven. He answers her through Ruth. Mm-hmm. And Ruth, in that scene where Naomi's anger is exploding, she's being held in a human embrace and hearing words of covenant love spoken by her daughter-in-law. I will never leave you, mm-hmm. you know? And, and then when Ruth And Ruth's vow carries through the book. Everything Ruth does is for Naomi. The blessed alliance has an outward trajectory. Mm. It's not that I'm fighting for my place at the table and you're fighting for your place at the table. It's that we are called by our creator. And that calling is reinforced by Jesus to do their work in the world, whether it's a little thing or a big thing. God will move his purposes forward on the shoulders of these two women who get Boaz to participate with their agenda. You know, it's so subversive how God works that I think, you know, we may look at all the famous people in the world and the people that, you know, we hear their names in Christian circles, but God is more subversive than that. I mean, you mentioned Afghanistan. The big things he's doing in the world could be through some young girl in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And Ruth is going to fight to feed her mother-in-law. She doesn't want to take scraps to her. She takes home because of what Boaz empowers her to do. She takes home 29 pounds of winnowed barley. And that's the point where Naomi sees that God hasn't forgotten her. You know, that's like somebody bringing you a loaf of bread and you saying, God hasn't forgotten me. I mean, it's so ordinary and mundane, but it's so out of the realm of possibility that this Mm -hmm. a worker, a harvester in the field of Boaz would take a half a month to a full month of work to take home that much in pay. So then the key word in the book of Ruth is the Hebrew word hesed. And it's a brand of love that is embodied by Jesus. It is a, it is a love that is that no one has a right to ask for. It's voluntarily given. It's costly and it's stubborn. Mm-hmm. And that's the love of God. And that's what Ruth has for Naomi. And she think of the danger to her as a foreigner in the field where other scavengers are there and male harvesters and Boaz has to tell him not to touch her. 
Right. And then to go to him in the dead of night to ask for marriage. I mean, that is the Me Too story that didn't happen. Because mm-hmm. Boaz, even though no one is watching, he knows someone is watching. And he is a different kind of man because of it. I mean, I love him. For those reasons, right? Like not the romanticized version of their story. They're all sacrificing. Naomi sends Ruth to be safely married and under a male umbrella. And Ruth is all she has. And she's giving her up. That's Hesed. Mm-hmm. And Ruth is going. Baron Ruth is going to Boaz to volunteer to bear a son. And that is Hesed. Mm-hmm. And she gives her son to Naomi. And the women celebrate and say, Naomi has a son. And Boaz, who I think has sons, will take from their estate to invest in Naomi's land. And it's a losing investment. So his sons will inherit less. And that is Hesed. And the other man won't do it because he said, this will ruin me. You know, so when we turn this into Cinderella, we miss the gospel in the Old Testament. And, And these people... God, and they don't even know, you know, all they know is that Naomi has a son and every they're provided for now. And he's going to grow up and take care of them, you know, be the leader in the family. And they don't even know that they were, that this little baby was going to be the grandfather of King David and that this would ultimately lead to Jesus. That's wild. It's crazy. (laughs) I I, I mean, I love it that they don't know because I think, okay, so the big shots, (laughs) the most important things he's doing in the world could be through that wife whose husband was floating face down in the pool. You, we don't know. And it may be through something so ordinary, a conversation that multiplies and passes on, you know, and, and we have this pecking order where we think these are the big, important Christians in America. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot happening in other places and God is way more subversive than that. And seems to be much more concerned with different things than we are. The whole thing hangs together because two women and a man were centered on God's purposes mm-hmm. just for the next family issue, <laughs> you know, but they were, there was something deeper driving them than I want this or I want that. They were all, all of them put themselves at risk for each other. And Boaz learns from Ruth because she lives on the hungry side of the law and he's grown up on it. But she moves him from the letter of the law to the spirit and he learns from her. And it's beautiful. And you just wonder what else they did afterwards, you know, because it's, you know, I don't, I can't imagine the story ended there. What you're saying reminds me of um, research when we look at relationships and, how John Gottman, marriage researcher, has found that when a husband accepts the influence of their female partner, their marriages are much more long-lasting and successful than marriages where husbands don't accept a woman's influence. And I just think it's so funny. Like that research is pointing to 
what Ruth and Boash yeah. <laughs> thousands of years ago, you know. It makes the marriage richer because you 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 both have a lot at stake. And as Christians, that that we that we have a center. You know, my husband, what happens to him matters to me, but he is not the center. Right. You know, and I and I'm I'm wrong. I mean, to me, this is a stewardship issue. Mm-hmm. My marriage is a stewardship issue. Am I bringing my whole self, not for selfish reasons, but because I want my husband to be all that God has created him to be. And I want to be the first roadblock if, you know, arrogance starts to be an issue, you know? So I, what happens in his you know, I, when he comes home, I work out of the, at it, my home office um, for the most part. And when he comes home, I want to know, how did it go? What happened? And how are you doing? And to be his sounding board and to, so that he's, you know, it's not good for us to be alone. And there are lots of ways, not even just in marriage, but in friendships and, you know, on the job scene, how we interact with each other. And how can we be if we're, if we're not going back to that, that first understanding that we are God's image bearers, like if we have such a, a small theology, or if we have such a low view of ourselves, because the vision that's been cast for us isn't big enough, how, how can we do exactly what you're talking about for your husband and, and not just for each other, but to move the mission of God forward? Yeah. There are big things at stake and, you know, it's, it is about stewardship. I mean, (laughs) I've reached a place where, you know, I'm not going to talk about what I can or can't do. If, if a door opens, I'm going to, I'm going to go through it, you know, and I've, and I've said to people, when I stand before Jesus, I'd rather be saying I did too much than I did too little. Yeah. And, you know, we had a, we had a situation where Frank's brother was in a mountain climbing crisis and there were three of them on Mount Hood and they were all three in trouble and we couldn't, we couldn't find them. And the rescue workers that went to the mountain were male and female. And we did not care who found them. And they ended up, oh, we lost all three of them. But it didn't matter to us if it was a woman or a man or, you know, a young person. It didn't matter. We just wanted them safely home. And I think in, you know, in, in the work that needs to be done for the kingdom, we are called to a crisis. The, the earth is emitting a distress signal mm-hmm. <laughs> and passivity isn't a spiritual gift. And we need to offer strength to those around us. This is not a competition. It's not a competition. We have a center. There's a beautiful image, an astronomical phenomenon where three bodies in outer space come into alignment and they're pulled together because there's a center. And as, as Christians, we have to be centered on Jesus and our theology, what we know of God and his character and his heart for the world, what we know about Jesus. And there's so much more to learn should shape how we care for one another and champion one another. Boaz championed Ruth. He didn't shred a bit of his male power and privilege. 
he invested it in making sure she succeeded and he did it sacrificially, you know, and I think, I don't, I don't know how you shed your power and privilege, you know, it's, it's just there, but you can sure use it to help others. Speaking of, I mean, I I, want to hear more about how that's transpired in your own marriage, but moving on to, you were talking about, you know, Ruth and Boaz didn't know that their son would become the grandfather of David and that Jesus would come from their lineage. I mean, talk about stewarding privilege and power in the story of Mary and Joseph. Yes. Well, again, one of the things that I have learned through my own study of scripture is that patriarchy is in the wrong place in our Western American theology, and we've exported it to other places because we, because the, of the fact that patriarchy is on just about every page of the Bible, we have concluded that patriarchy is the message. Mm but it's not the message. It's the backdrop to the message. And when we put it in its proper place, the stories become infinitely more powerful and more gospel. So the Mary and Joseph story takes place in a culture where a girl is marriageable when she hits puberty. So the fact that she's not married means she's really young. And she probably, you know, marriage is not something that you date (laughs) and shop around. It's something your father negotiates and money changes hands. And so she could have been promised in marriage since she was born. And she shows up pregnant and Joseph knows he's not the father. Well, think about life under the Taliban. And what would happen to a young unmarried girl who turns up pregnant? And who has she wronged? She's wronged her family and she's wronged her promised, her betrothed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he has his honor to stand up for. And over and over and over again in this world, the punishment lands on the woman for wronging the men. And even in our own culture, you know, we don't always hear about who the, who impregnated somebody, you know, but the girl can't hide it. Mm-hmm. So she shows up, Mary shows up with this wild story. And Joseph has already made up his mind. One of the things it says about him is that he is a righteous man in Matthew's gospel. I always liken him to the People magazine sexiest man in the world because he's he's the lead story on Matthew's gospel. And he should be, you know, because he's he's another Boaz like man. He's just he's driven by something different than male ego. And he's not going to have her stoned and he's going to not make a public spectacle out of her. He's not going to, you know, vindicate his male honor. That's crazy in intensive patriarchal cultures. She'll pay for this, you know, and he's not going to do it. And by the way, he has more encounters with angels than anybody else in that narrative, (laughs) but he doesn't get, you know, he gets sort of pushed aside because we want to look at Mary and Jesus. But Joseph is a righteous man and it's not the pharisaical brand of righteousness. Mm. It's, It's the righteousness that Jesus brings. And Matthew is going to contrast 
give us two different types of righteousness in his gospel. So Joseph's an important lead character. But what you have in this story ultimately is that Joseph ends up shutting down his carpenter's shop and getting behind God's calling on his wife. And it's a sacrificial Tested. Tested. Yeah. And, you know, that's what we're supposed to live by. And I mean, it's just upside down. And, and if you if you look at their story against a patriarchal backdrop, it's intensified at how radical this is. Yeah. I mean, in today's world, my husband stayed home with the baby and I kept working because I was the breadwinner. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Pretty much nobody blinked, but in their day, for him to do what he did, there's just some, there are amazing, I wrote Maelstrom because I kept coming across these men in the Bible that sort of get pushed aside. And I thought, oh my goodness, these men are awesome. Mm -hmm. And they're, and again, you know, it's that they, they use their male power and privilege to empower others, to advance God's purposes and to recognize God's hand on somebody else's life, you know, but they're part of it too. And what would happen to Mary and to Jesus without Joseph? Right. He's indispensable. That's so power. I mean, it's, it just makes scripture come alive in such a different way to see the ways that men and women work together and how they, I mean, the gospel couldn't be moved forward without both men and women. Yeah. Well, think how we're hindering it. We have all these rules. You know, for me, I couldn't follow the rules. I've never been able to follow the rules. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I thank God for that. How can I justify passivity? How can I shut down so that we focus only on my husband and what God is calling him to do. And I feel like I'm a part of that, mm-hmm. you know, but he feels like he's, I mean, I wouldn't be doing what I do without him shoving me out the front door or yeah. saying, if this is important, it's worth fighting for. What are you going to do? You know, he didn't say, I'll go fight for you. <laughs> it's like, right. oh, say that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, tell me how that works in your marriage. Well, so Evan and I, we've been married for nine years. And when we got married, there's this funny story that I tell of our engagement. He came from a family where his mom worked. I came from a family where my mom stayed at home. Um, and so, and a lot of the same similar messages that you grew up with just about women and, and kind of their place, not necessarily for my church, but just in the Christian sphere. That's reading a lot of Christian books because I've always been interested in relationships. That's where I got a lot of it. But Evan said something like, you can go to school and finish your master's. I was already in seminary and I'll work full time and then we'll switch. I'll go to school and you can work full time. And unlike you, that wasn't a framing that I had. So I was like, how dare you? ask me to work. Like just this very, that's where I started. And so it's been a very long process since then of realizing that I do have agency and responsibility, responsibility, you know, and just growing in my view of myself, but a, a lot because he has helped me do that, like pushed me out the door in a lot of ways. When I was still in seminary, he I had this idea, we were living in student housing and I was seeing these, these kids flipping around. It was the summer of the Olympics 
and I had a gymnastics background. I was like, what if I just taught those kids gymnastics? And he was like, well, you should. So that turned into a gymnastics business and just things that I never would have done that have gotten me to this point had I not had a partner who was saying, no, you need to be a full partner. Like I'm not accepting this, (laughs) you know, relying on me because that is not who God created you to be, you know? So I resonate a lot with the stories that you're sharing and with what you've shared about your own marriage. Tell me more about how your husband has done that for you. What are some other examples of that blessed alliance in your marriage? Well, I, you know, I think it, there have just been lots of times when I've had an opportunity to do something, you know, I've got, I mean, it has come at a cost. It has come at a huge cost and, but I can't, I can't go back. And, and he's right there, you know, he understands the pain and he, he just says, this is important. And, and I think it is, I mean, it's totally changed my life. I'm not doing what I do because my husband says I need to do it. Mm -hmm. I'm doing it because God has called us to live for him and to use our responsibilities and privileges. What, I mean, what an amazing thing it is to get an education. I mean, I just grieve that there are little girls in the world who are not allowed. And I grieve that I didn't take it more seriously, that I didn't understand the global picture of education for women and girls. Mm-hmm. And when you're, when you're taught that you're going to, that you're going to grow up and somebody else is going to take responsibility for everything, what Mm -hmm. does that do to you? You know, and what are you looking for? Instead of looking for somebody where you're, I mean, one of the things when my mom said, you'll follow your husband, I'm thinking, I want to be in lockstep with my husband. I want to grow with him and I want to think things through with him and I do not want to be dragged by the hair, you know? So it mattered to me what he thought about things. And we talked about some of that before we even got engaged. I just, I wanted to keep growing and I had, you know, had, had realized so there was so much more to learn and, uh, and I'm still doing that and, and we share it, you know, we talk about what we're learning and we learn a lot of things and we ask the questions with each other, but you know, I, that just sounded horrible to me. (laughs) You know, you will follow your husband. Okay. Let's ask where he's going. I'm, I'm not into making new terms. Some of these decisions have come at a cost and to turn around and say, okay, which I tried to do actually, you know, now I know how this works. And he didn't want anything to do with that. You know, he grew up with a mom who was, you know, trying to feed their family and keep things afloat. And, you know, he's going to tell me that I should just go dormant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he said, I, you know, that's not why I married you anyway. You know? <laughs> and we do, we take care of each other. And, but he pushes me out the door. You know, I've done things that <laughs> would get me shot in some cultures. <laughs> I, ha- I, I don't answer to those people. I answer to the Lord and mm-hmm. I stand before him and, you know, I'm, I may get in trouble, <laughs> but like I said, I'd rather get in trouble for doing too much. I think most of us aren't, aren't risking that. And yeah. it, certainly I grieve over what I've wasted and the opportunities that I've wasted. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, 
You know, I think, I think marriage is such a crucible. It's not the only way that people grow, but it is one way. And it's the way that I mostly work with. And it is a growth process. Some people get to it. Some people don't, but I'm curious. I mean, I know that you've seen a lot. You've, you've spoken all over the world. What are you seeing? Are there real hindrances across the board when it comes to Christian couples and having this small vision versus God's actual mission? What are the hindrances there? Do you think? Well, I think some of it is just the cult, the teachings that come to us from the church. Everywhere an image bearer is, is a kingdom frontline. And I don't want to teach that being at home and raising a family are unimportant. Those are strategic kingdom frontlines. And everywhere we are as God's image bearer is a kingdom frontline. And, you know, you look at the book of Ruth and what she was doing was collecting scraps of grain. And that was kingdom work. You know, so I don't minimize anything. I had a friend who was 90 years old and she had been a missionary. And as kids, we had grown up hearing about her and she would come stay with us when she was on furlough. We just adored her. When she turned 90, her family put her in an assisted living facility. She couldn't take care of herself. And she just said she felt like her story was, she said, I felt like my life was over. And then she said, I looked around me and I thought, oh my goodness. She said, I have a mission field here nobody's touching. And nothing is ruled out. Nothing is ruled out. I mean, maybe some of the grandstanding is, but the ordinary, the behind the scenes, the mundane, if God's in it, you know, and he is, then it has meaning. And we can raise our sights to bigger issues. I mean, I have a really close friend who read about what was happening to young women in the world who would deliver babies and end up with fistula. And it would be the end of their lives. They would be put out and their husbands wouldn't want them around. And she <laughs> she couldn't stand it. And she she's raised support for fistula surgeries for women. And it has helped thousands of them wow. get their lives back, you know, and there's so much that needs to be done in the world that there's God cares about all of it. You know, the suffering, that's what he did. He eased the suffering. He, he alleviated the suffering. He heard the cries and, you know, I, every story matters. And I just think we need to take ourselves more seriously. We need to work at knowing God in deeper ways, knowing Jesus more deeply, because that's what will help us when we hit those, we're going to all hit hard spots. And, you know, what, what do we have to reach for? Is it fluff? Is it fake? You know, mm -hmm. or is it really who Jesus is? Is it really what God's heart is for us? I just feel like every life matters and our stories all take different trajectories and we need to steward whatever what do we then, I know you're saying we need to focus on Christ, focus on the gospel, know God. What do we need to stop believing? What, what messages do we need to do away with? 
Well, I think I, and you probably can answer that better than I can, but there are a lot of messages that, that we have embraced that put us at risk where we become willing to put up with things that are wrong, you know, and it's not always something we have the strength to manage ourselves and we need to go for help. And the sad thing for me is that the church isn't always a good place to go for help. I've really gotten up to my eyeballs in that, um, you know, where there's just a lot of abuse or when a woman goes forward and says, you know, this, that, and the other thing is happening to me at home. And they say, well, you need to submit better. And, you know, one of the things I'm working on, I have two new projects going on. One of them is about the Blessed Alliance, but the one that is before that, I want to look at how our Christian theology, our so-called Christian theology, creates an environment that is conducive to abuse. Mm -hmm. The operative word for women is not submission. And I think a lot of, and it's it's complicated because, you know, every, every country, every generation has the gospel taken to it and has to look again at the way we do things on the basis of Jesus and God's vision in the beginning. And, you know, when we, when Paul is talking to people in New Testament times, he's talking to people in an intensely patriarchal culture. And when he gives directions to slaves, people have assumed that the Bible approves of slavery. And when he teaches women that they need to be submissive, or Peter does that too, we just assume that that's our default mode. And you know from your clients that that gets women into terrible, vulnerable situations when that's our first impulse or that that's what we're taught when we go for help. You need to do that better. Paul isn't talking to focus on the family couples at a marriage retreat, you know, He's talking to women who are believers whose husbands are not. He's talking to women who have three other co-wives because they had polygamy then. And he's talking to uh, into a culture that is based on slavery in many respects. And those slaves aren't going to get out of that. So to teach them how to manage themselves to be safe is part of it. And, you know, there's a beautiful text in Galatians that gets run over (laughs) by English translations. But again, if you put patriarchy behind it, it is so radical. Buckle up, I'll tell you. (laughs) I'm ready, I'm excited. Okay, so we, we often hear that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one, right? We hear mm-hmm. that. But what we don't pay attention to is what gets said two verses before that, where Paul writes, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And modern translations have tried to avoid excluding women when male terminology is used. Right. But this is a patriarchal culture. He's telling women and slaves and Gentiles, you are all son. You all have the status of son. Yeah. 
And in page under patriarchy, well, my NIV says you are all children of God because they didn't want women to feel left out. And I'm thinking, tell us what it means. Sure. <laughs> and that means that when a slave sets foot inside the community of God's people, he's a son. And he's a slave when he goes home, but he's a son among us. And when women set foot inside the community of believers, they're not wife number three. They're mm. a son. They're a son. I mean, it's a it's a radical overthrow of patriarchy. It really is. It really is. Well, Carolyn, I am so grateful for your time today. You've been very generous with it. And I just, I want to say to you what I appreciate so much is that you don't get distracted by the dichotomies that are sometimes created within this space and talking about marriage or roles or camps that you just, you center in on the nature of God, who Christ is, what his mission is in the world. And, and, and really, I feel like you're working to make the church better and taking that job very seriously. And I'm very grateful. Thank you. Thank you. I love what you're doing and our marriages need emancipation <laughs> you know because they there's there's a lot of potential there and instead of following these constraints which they're they're constraints on both women and men you know the man is alone again with the way yeah. of marriage and I don't want my husband to be alone as long yeah. as I'm you know I don't. And I run into a, a lot of men in my work who are such incredible Christian brothers. And they're all over the place and not just in our country, but there are a bunch of them here. And, you know, God bless them. I would hate to be without them. So they're there. And, um, you know, God is at work. We need we need him to work on us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, friends, I hope you'll go visit Carolyn's website, carolyncustisjames.com, which I will link in the show notes. And you can follow her work there or purchase one of her many, many wonderful books on Amazon. Very grateful for you, Carolyn. Thank you. Thank you so much. Love is not a Love is not a bond Love is just as fragile